A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The numbers on drug overdose deaths are appalling. After rising for many decades, America's life expectancy rate, and this is shocking to me, has fallen for the past two years. Much of that is because of the opioid and heroin epidemic. Nearly 50,000 Americans died last year. But perhaps, Jim, there are tiny glimmers of hope. Yeah, perhaps. It's starting to look like as cities and states pour new resources into the fight against the epidemic, the death rate may be peaking. At least there's a few early indicators that that might be true. So we decided to repeat our show about the opioid epidemic from this time a year ago. And at the end of the show, we'll have a little update on some of the new developments in the field. Tackling the opioid crisis Sam Quinones. This is a story of isolation versus community. The reason we got into this is because as Americans, we're extraordinarily isolated, both economically, physically, geographically, politically, and the best response would therefore be community. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, it's hard to overestimate the destruction, the suffering, the pain caused by America's opioid epidemic. It's an addiction crisis like no other the country has faced. Yeah, and it's really striking how it didn't really become really front and center in the national conversation until surprisingly recently, even though it's been going on for such a long time. And maybe that's because the media is based in big cities like New York and Los Angeles and Washington. And this and is happening out somewhere else. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's take a deeper dive into this problem and see if we can come up with some solutions. We're speaking today with journalist Sam Quinones, author of the highly praised book Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. It's a story that began in the 1990s with Purdue Pharma's marketing of OxyContin, a new treatment for pain that proved to be highly addictive, but it also involves a massive influx of black tar heroin. Sam Quinones joins us via Skype from Los Angeles on very short notice. Sam, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You say this crisis began because we sought easy answers to a complicated problem, pain management. Uh, tell us more. Well, yes, I think uh, Americans in general began to want easy, uncomplicated solutions to things. And, and I think this spread over into uh, medicine and how we viewed medical treatment 
And, and uh, one of the most complicated things that doctors have to do is treat our pain. And, and so an easy answer, because also we were being told that these pills were now known to be virtually non-addictive when used to treat pain. These are pills that derive from the opium poppies. And some of this research that suggested that they weren't particularly addictive, you look back and it found out it was based on some extremely sketchy reporting. Right. There was no scientific basis for this idea. And that what they were basing it on were, were a few very sketchy reports. They were not studies by any means. One was actually a letter to the editor, but yet were taken by these pain specialists and pharmaceutical companies who were making this argument uh, in the late 1990s as proof that science now knew that these pills were somehow non-addictive when used to treat pain. Pain is a deep mystery. It's very complicated to deal with. It's as much as art as it is a science, is my understanding. But one of the things that, that, that really comes across as you talk with doctors about this is that a, a lot of pain management would be far easier if Americans made better consumer choices of what they consumed and their exercise. And um, also, during these years, doctors in general had fewer, fewer strategies they could employ because the insurance companies stopped reimbursing for things like acupuncture and uh, marital counseling, which can, which can sometimes be part of a person's pain. Can, can we just simply then blame aggressive marketing by the drug companies, particularly uh, Purdue Pharma, or is it more complicated than that? Uh, I think certainly that's one place you might look, but I also believe it is more complicated than that. I believe Americans wanted this, and they, they pestered their doctors and the doctors, you know, the doctor-patient relationship is a very delicate uh, thing. And doctors are there trying very hard, most of them, to help their patients and wanting to be liked and wanting to be helpful. And in many cases over the last couple of decades, doctors came to be measured by various patient satisfaction surveys as well, right? And if you're – some of the questions might, exactly. in, might include things like, did the hospital or the, or the staff do everything they could to help you with your pain – and doctors who got bad scores on those, they could actually be hurt in their compensation. Uh, absolutely. That was, a, that was a lever through which patients essentially extorted pills from doctors, if you ask me. It became that, I would say. Uh, certainly as, as evaluations, they're virtually pointless. All they ask is a few questions, one of them being when you ask. But it doesn't really give you any data upon which to improve the appointment or improve the hospital service. And patients, particularly the ones who were most insistent on getting these pills, were, were demanding, and they would use those evaluations. And lots of doctors mentioned this. This is not something that's isolated. It's all across the country, as doctors and hospitals uh, were increasingly forced to kind of toe the line when it comes to these evaluations. To my mind, it's one of the things we could change, really. Now, the opioid epidemic began with these prescription painkillers, but then yep. many people got hooked on illegal drugs, such as heroin. C correct. And, and that, that happened for a variety of reasons. One was that their doctors would see that they were out of control in their use of pills and would stop prescribing. Others, they would lose their insurance and not have any money to pay for the pills. And others would, uh, would simply get addicted and, and switch to heroin because they just wanted a, a slightly more powerful high. But all of these pills were prescribed to somebody, whether you bought them legitimately or you bought them on the street. So the, the enormous new supply 
that the doctors are prescribing, a lot of that leaks its way out onto the streets and makes up a black market. But that's unsustainable. That is unsustainable because these pills on the street, the black market for them is dollar a milligram, usually. And you're doing 100, 200, 300 milligrams a day that you can't pay that much, 100, 200, 300 dollars a day. So, so people switched to uh, to heroin, and that's where our heroin market had also shifted. But I, I still don't quite understand this. Why would people go from black market painkillers or, or legitimate prescription drugs to heroin? I mean, what what's is because, there a similar high? These, or? these drugs are, are chemically very, very similar. They're all derived from the opium poppy. Their highs are the same. They're very good painkillers, but they're also extraordinarily addictive. They have the same withdrawal symptoms as heroin does. So heroin is a replacement drug for them if you can find it cheaper. Before we talk about solutions, I'd, I'd like to know about what this epidemic has done, not only to families, but to communities. Tell us about a city you wrote about, Portsmouth, Ohio. Uh, yeah, I fastened on it because it was the place where they invented the, the pill mill, which is a pain clinic in which you're really just selling prescriptions. There's no medical diagnosis. The history of Portsmouth is that it used to be a, a real strong industrial town making steel, shoes, a variety of things. And a lot of people, 50,000 people, a strong, vibrant Main Street, locally owned shops, all of that slowly begins to just fade away as the jobs leave, as the factories leave, as half the population leaves. It se always seemed to me that just as the Indians were, were uh, very vulnerable to smallpox when, when the Europeans came over, so too folks who remained in Portsmouth were, were very vulnerable to this horrible scourge because they were right in the area where these pills were first promoted by pharmaceutical companies. And a whole generation or two got addicted, and it, it killed many people. It destroyed families. It really destroyed a lot of economic activity. Our guest is Sam Quinones, uh, the author of the book Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And this is How Do We Fix It? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let, let's talk about what we can do in terms of treatment, and what have you seen that looks promising? Uh, I think one place 
that we really need to look is jail. Jail's been done one way, badly, for many, many, many years, which is to say we put people in jail. It's a parking lot for humans, boring beyond words, predatory at times, bartering, a lot of weird sexual stuff from time to time. All of this very tense, very stressful. And think of what happens. An addict gets off the street, detoxes, gets all those drugs out of his system, is finally thinking clearly. And it's at that very moment, usually of great contrition, that we put that guy into a jail that is boring beyond words, predatory, stressful. That is the worst place to put that guy. I think that we need to rethink jail in in America uh, today. Yeah, yeah. Talk talk about what's going on in Kentucky because that is an example of a, of a solution or at least a way forward, right? Sure. As it turns out, a, a good twenty five jails in in Kentucky are doing this, and they have transformed a pod, a seventy man pod, is what I saw, into a full time rehabilitation clinic. Pretty much every service that you would get in a private outside treatment center, you're getting at this one pod. You you have to volunteer, but you wake up in the morning, 8 a.m., you make your bed military style, and for the rest of the day, you are working on your recovery. Criminal addictive thinking classes, GED classes, working out, time for prayer meditation, NA meetings. And NA meetings, meaning uh, Narcotics Anonymous? Yes, right. Yeah. And so what you see is something I've never seen in a jail, and I've been in a few jails in my life, is an attitude of nurturing. Jails have not been nurturing places. They are brutal, they're predatory, they're boring, they are anything but nurturing. But in this pot, you're seeing nurturing places. So what happens to these inmates when they get back on the street? I think it's working better than the alternative. It is not, of course, a panacea. There is no panacea to this. And so these are extraordinarily enslaving drugs we're talking about. And so some people, yes, get out and they don't quite make it. Um, I should add that this jail also offers uh, reentry services, so jobs, sober living houses, Vivitrol, which keeps you from overdosing. Some people don't make it, uh, but I think they've done studies on, on, on those folks who have left, and there are higher incidences of the things that would keep you from relapsing. There's better connectivity with family, greater likelihood of being employed, greater likelihood of living with your family. Another area is, is drug courts. Um, I yes. know there's an example in, in Buffalo, New York. Are they making a, a difference in some places? Oh, I think so. I think this is a recognition that a lot of people's crime is directly related to their addiction. And the best drug courts require significant accountability uh, on the part of the uh, person who's, who's asking for his or her record to be expunged or a felony to be dropped to a misdemeanor. Um, and that means you have to be always going to meetings, you have to have a mentor, you have to be uh, looking for work, you have to be doing all these things, you have to be meeting these certain... But in, in return, you are not treated as a, uh, as a, as a festering sore, <laughs> you are treated as a human being, you are treated with uh, an interest in your best outcome, uh, which is what I've seen in some of the best um, drug courts. 
So one of the themes that you've expressed is that, that there's not just one solution. It's going to be a suite of solutions. And what I'm hearing from you is that's also true for individual patients. It's not enough just to have yes. a, a, you know, one type of therapy. This is a whole life right. problem. A- absolutely. You know, I was in a, in a clinic, a, a neonatal clinic, where a lot of infants have been born and are addicted and are withdrawing. You know, and the nurse said to me, uh, do you know uh, what these infants need more than anything? And I said, uh, no, what's that? And she said, cuddling. They need to be cuddled. What does that mean for an addict? What it means is every addict cannot go it alone. You need to be surrounded by services and people who can make you feel as if you're not in it alone, who you can turn to when maybe things get hard, that there's this community of help. Trying to do this alone is disastrous. It almost never works. But you, you understand as you dig into this story and this whole problem that we have nationwide, that this is a story of isolation versus community. The reason we got into this is because as Americans, we're extraordinarily isolated, both economically, physically, geographically, politically, and the best response would therefore be community. By that, I mean a variety of approaches to addiction, using all the different ways and people we have And we have not been doing that. We've been working in silos, every one of us, uh, and so many agencies, so many groups, so many nonprofits will just work alone. And to me, it feels like the overarching idea is that we must begin to start breaking down those silos and working together. Right. So, Sam, you've you've seen some of the the worst of America and some of the saddest stories that are happening in our society today. You've also seen some really important and inspiring work and inspiring people. Are you optimistic? There's reasons for optimism and pessimism, but I I do believe that this is one of the great moments of our history, honestly, that can show us that by coming together as Americans, forgetting the polarization that is so much on display on on this 24-hour news, cable news that we seem to to love to endure. And and coming together as Americans, you see the great reasons for optimism in counties where people are just putting that stuff aside and deciding they're going to be working together. All these different groups kind of coming together, that's where you see the wonderful, beautiful, exhilarating part of this country. Uh, You can see a whole bunch of other not-so-exhilarating parts in this issue. But this issue allows us the opportunity to come together as Americans, put behind us all that crud that is force-fed to us on 24-hour news and a variety of other ways, and, and, and become Americans in community. Again, we have destroyed community in this country in a million different ways all across the country, and heroin is what you get when you do that. Sam Quinones. Um, some some kind of beautiful remarks there in 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 closing. Thank you, uh, the author of Dreamland. Uh, thanks for joining us. Certainly, my pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me. So, at the end of our interview with Sam Quinones, he was talking about the failure of community 
as well as the loneliness and isolation of so many Americans, that's a major cause of this epidemic. There's a new book by Republican Senator Ben Sass called Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal that talks about this loneliness crisis, Jim, and community solutions, especially local solutions, could be the start, at least, of the way out of this. You know, it's it's been such a big theme on our show, Richard, from the very get-go, is the problems that are developing in our society from the loss of real, tangible local community, and to some extent, it's been replaced by the intangible online community. I, I'm not blaming all of this on social media. There are a lot of causes for the opioid epidemic, but what Sam pointed out so well is these things all tend to go hand in hand. The healthy environment for addicts doesn't just mean one kind of treatment or one kind of program. They need a whole suite of of services and help. So one reason, one reason, Jim, why I wanted to do this show is because just in the past few days, there was a really interesting article published in the New York Times about Dayton, Ohio, and how the overdose death rate in the county that covers Dayton has fallen by more than 50 percent in just the past year, and how a Democratic mayor of Dayton has praised the Republican governor of Ohio, John Kasich, for his decision to expand Medicaid and also make a major push on, on fighting opioids. So once again, it's, it's a local and statewide effort as opposed to a federal effort that, that could really be making a difference. And they're seeing some real signs of success. I mean, Ohio was kind of ground zero for this problem. And one of the things that that jumped out at me about Dayton's approach is instead of the police and fire agencies and uh, the medical services acting separately, they're working together. There's something called Getting Recovery Options Working that dispatches teams of social workers, medics, police officers, and people in recovery interestingly enough, to the homes of people who have recently overdosed. So it's a, it's a real community effort. Yeah, I was also really pleased to see that that New York Times article cited the work of Sam Quinones about this exact issue. He said something like, you know, what you really want to see is police and health first responders and nurses getting together socially, going out for a beer and talking about how to approach these problems. One other thing in that time story that it's so basic but so important is just making Narcan, the emergency drug that will reverse the effects of opioids. It'll bring them back almost instantly. And it's been kind of controversial. Some people say, well, you know, if you just have it around all the time, then the addicts will just keep taking it. But it's so important to just have the chance. Maybe the first overdose, they're not going to go into treatment. Maybe not the second, but maybe it's the third. Maybe it's the fourth. You got to give those people a shot at life. Now, another solution is to lean on insurance companies to make safer alternatives to opioids less expensive. On the other hand, the FDA, just in the past few weeks, has approved a drug called Desuvia, which is highly controversial. Opponents say that if this gets out into uh, the, the population as a whole, it could be a disaster because this new drug is much more powerful than fentanyl. It goes under the tongue and is designed to treat cases of extreme pain. The Pentagon has asked for it. Um, however, you know, you wonder whether this is, is a smart thing to do or, or not. Be. It depends on how it's prescribed. But I think we need to be careful of 
overly simplistic solutions. We don't want to deprive people with severe unmanageable pain of uh, of options necessary to control their pain. Either. Now, uh, on on an, on the glimmer of hope side, President Trump signed bipartisan legislation. It's a very rare phrase these days to fight the opioid crisis in America, and uh, that will expand addiction treatment. Spend about six billion dollars more in in funding to fight opioids. So that so that's at least hopeful that both parties have come together on a federal level to fight a major national crisis. You know, if we can't come together on this, we are just completely screwed, <laughs> Richard. I mean, yeah. you yeah. know, it's so nice to hear that word bipartisan. Um, we need to hear it a lot more often. And uh, I think $6 billion is just going to be is, – is it's a great start, but we're going to need a lot more. This is a problem of a generation. But I do think – it is something that we can handle. Remember back in the 80s, people thought the crack epidemic would just go on forever and keep getting worse. And then guess what? It didn't. You know, crack is still around. There's still people who suffer from it, but it's much, much smaller problem than it was. On next week's show, uh, we hope to be speaking with uh, Sam Lane Perfass, who is the podcast host of a show called Perception Gaps. And among the issues we're going to be talking about is indeed the opioid crisis. That's coming up next on How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And the music is by Lou Stravinsky. We're a production of Davies Content. Uh, we make digital audio, which is podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Please check us out at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for joining us. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.